Today we're going to be reading first from our Old Testament reading in the book of Deuteronomy. In this portion of Deuteronomy, Moses predicts that another person will come like him, who will do similar things to him, and that the people of Israel must be ready for his coming. So this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, starting from verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Mount Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and I shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of it. So the Lord promised that another prophet will come like Moses after Moses' death. And it's interesting. It should tell us Moses was a prophet, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. And yet, now that he's at the end of his life, would die very soon after speaking these words. God apparently still has more to say. What else could he have to say? What else could the Lord have to do through the prophets? And it's that kind of thing that we address in our first um, Easter sermon this year. So we're going to be reading from the book of Hebrews for our sermon today and for the next three sermons or so afterwards, talking about Jesus Christ. The first part of Hebrews is especially focused on Jesus Christ as compared to other things that the Lord has done. How constantly in the past the Lord has done something in the past. Sent a prophet, sent Moses, sent high priest, so on and so forth. And these things were good. But Christ is better. Infinitely better. So for our first sermon in this Easter series, we're talking about Christ as the great prophet who is better than all of the prophets who have come before, a better prophet who has spoken in the name of the Lord. So in light of this, hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The writer of the Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Father God, we give you thanks that you have indeed spoken to us through this greater prophet, through Jesus Christ. It's in his name, Father, that your apostles and the prophets who came after him spoke, 
How they came, Father, they came in his name, sent by him to speak these things, to write these things down so that we could hear them. And Father, your Son continues to speak to us now through this word. Bless it to our hearing, Father, and to our understanding. Glorify yourself with how you speak to us today. Help me, Father, to explain this passage, and Father, bless your people through it. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you're like me, when you're working on a project or a paper or something like that, then you can't really wait to have it done. Not only so that you don't have to really think about this project or this work assignment anymore, so that you can just be, you know, done with it. I mean, that's certainly part of it. There were certainly times in seminary and at other points in my life when I just wanted to be done with this paper. But there can also be that sense of accomplishment when you're finished. After all the blood and the sweat and the tears and the time that you've just poured into this project day after day, you can finally say, I'm done. I've said what I need to say. I've met the requirements I need to, I need to meet. There is nothing more I need to worry about here. There's nothing more that needs to be said or done, at, l- at least for a while. To get to that point in a project, that is just so satisfying to say, I am finished. What's funny to me then is how often we look for expansions on things that technically are finished, but they keep doing things with. Expansions to things that we enjoy. I can't can't tell you how many times I've read a book or seen a movie, played a game, or watched a television show, something else. I'm sure you've seen this as well. You finish this thing and said, okay, that was excellent. Are they going to do a sequel? Are they planning to do more with this? I mean, many of us here, this being Burbank and all that, we love movies. We love watching movies, and well, we like watching excellent movies. We'll buy them, and then we'll hear later on, oh, they're releasing a director's cut of this movie. More scenes, perhaps, um, behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm really going to think about buying that. I mean, when they first came out, I loved watching the Lord of the Rings movies, for example, but then when the director's cut came out, I wanted that. It really did add something to have those extra scenes and all that extra content added on. Or if you're somebody who enjoys video games, you can buy the base game, certainly, but more and more there's extra content that you can buy, extra things that you can add to this technically finished project that just extend the life of the game a bit more. And there's other things like that further and further on. But sooner or later, the developer or the author or the publisher is going to say, I'm finished now. I'm done. I've said everything I want to say. I've done what I want to do. My work, my message, my art is out there, and I'm not doing anything else. It's time to close up shop and put down the pen and paper. And I bring out all of this, I talk about all of this, because the passage in front of us is telling us God has done something like that for his people. He has spoken to them, and he has said all that he wants to say. Now, you might have heard at other times from other people that the Word of God is kind of like a letter from God to his people. He is telling us what he wants to know about himself. And if that's true, if that's an analogy that we can use, God is speaking to us, God is writing to us like in a letter, 
then this passage, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, is telling us God has said everything that he intends to say. Everything he wants us to know about himself and us in relation to him, that is knowable and it is accessible and he is finished now. But how do we get that knowledge? Where do we find that knowledge? This passage tells us in Christ Jesus, in the Son of God himself. As our theme for this passage tells us, Christ perfectly reveals the will of God to his church in this present age. We will see that because Jesus does this, we have everything we need to know about God, about ourselves, and about the world around us. But how does Jesus reveal these things to us? How does he tell us about these things? In three ways, according to this passage. First, he does this by speaking for God. Then second, by possessing God's nature. And then third and finally, by sitting at God's right hand. So our first point, God speaks, excuse me, Christ speaks for God. As the author of Hebrews um, makes it out, this is a very big deal. This is practically the first thing that he says in this entire passage, that, that Jesus Christ speaks for God. Out of this whole large epistle, this is the first thing that he wants his hearers to understand. But why is it such a big deal to him that Christ speaks for God? Well, according to verse 1, our first verse here, the author says, Jesus was not the first person whom God sent to speak in his name, not by a long shot. The author says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, the author to the Hebrews, we don't know the author's name, so we'll simply call him the author. He is writing to a group of converted Jews in the first century A.D., Jewish converts who have left on their old Judaism and have now converted to Christianity. These are men and women who know the past. They know what God has done in the past because this is literally their past. This is their history. They would have known that their ancestors had received the Lord's revelation, that God had spoken directly to their fathers many times and in many ways over the past centuries. Every good Orthodox Jew knows God spoke to Abraham and promised to make him a nation with many descendants, as numerous as the stars of heaven. And he made that promise to Abraham, to his son Isaac, and to his son Jacob after him. And then after these three forefathers of Israel had died, God continued to speak to their descendants after them. He made promises to them. He guided them, protected them, and continued to speak through the prophets. He sent them Moses, who we'll talk about next week, and who brought them the law of God. Later still, after Moses died, God continued to send prophets and speak to them. He sent angels at several times, and always the prophets especially would proclaim, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. He is speaking to you, to his people Israel, and he calls you to faithful obedience. Every faithful Jew knows these things, knew these things then. The Lord has revealed himself, has spoken to his people. And they also understood these were not strange, isolated incidences. These were things that happened not every day, obviously, but they knew that they happened and that they could happen. The author says, at many times and in many ways. If we were to do a survey through all of the Old Testament, just the Old Testament, 
then we would see God speaking in all kinds of different ways, revealing himself in all kinds of different ways. Most often, he would send prophets. He would give them dreams and visions of things that he was saying and doing. He would do a miraculous deed, a mighty deed through his prophets. And then he would explain, this is why I did this. This is the significance of this thing. On more than one occasion, he sent angelic messengers from heaven carrying a word. Sometimes he would speak directly to the prophet himself. And he'd tell them, bring this message to my people, and again, say, thus says the Lord. This is what I am saying to them, through you. And we must understand, these were not the ravings of a couple of crazy old men who'd been baking for too long in the Judean sun. As 2 Peter 2, verses 1, excuse me, 2 Peter 2, 1, verse 21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, whether a prophet was given a vision, a dream, spoke directly to the Lord, or was directed to do a miracle, every true prophet understood the message that I have, the miracle that I am doing, this is God's message to us, to his people. The prophets did not make these things up. They were given a message from the Lord and charged with bringing it to their audience. The prophet's speech was really God speaking himself, God talking about himself, God showing himself to people. And the truth and the power of his self-revelation to his people, through his prophets, that could not be ignored. And if it was, it was always at a terrible loss to the ultimate downfall of those who were foolish enough to disobey him. The prophets were of exceeding importance in the Old Testament era. That cannot be missed. And yet, for all of their importance, for all the power of the prophets, all the things that they did, all the ways that God revealed himself in the past, there was always something lacking in them. Now, when I say that there was something lacking, don't hear me saying there was something wrong with what they were doing. They did not do something wrong. They did not speak in error. They did not deceive. No, they didn't deceive. There was nothing wrong with their revelation and the things that they brought. The problem was it was always incomplete. They were never done. Think about it like this. Let's say that God has just spoken to Abraham. If that is what God wanted to say, if that is all that God wanted his people to know forever after, just the things he said to Abraham in the first couple chapters of Genesis, if that was it, then God would not have needed to speak again. I've said what I want to say. I don't need to elaborate on this anymore. If that's what would have happened, God would not have elaborated, yes? But that's not what happened. God spoke to Abraham and his descendants, and then he sent Moses with more revelation, with the law of God. And then he sent more prophets after that. Time and again, they built upon each other. God continued to speak because he wasn't done, because there was still more to hear, there was still more to say, there was still more for him to reveal. The author is telling, the, the Jews at this point, is telling the Hebrews, the former times were good for what they were. They were necessary. God spoke. But he was never done. The old times were good. 
but they were not complete. The prophets spoke, but they always looked forward to a final word, a last prophet from God. And now, the author says, we have that final word. We have that last prophet who reveals the Lord to us completely. Verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The prophets who were sent before Jesus Christ came, they were good. They were authoritative. They were necessary. But their clout, their authority, is nothing compared to that of God's own Son. Time and again, God would speak, and he would build upon what he would say. He'd say something, and then he'd build on that, and he'd build on that, and build on that, piecemeal, bit by bit, thing by thing, always, though, needing to reach an end sometime. And the author is saying, that end is come. The piecemeal revelation that we had before has reached its terminus. Everything that God wanted to say to his people, everything he wanted to reveal about himself and his will for them, he has said it now. And this man, Jesus Christ, is the one who makes it known to us clearly. That man is the only begotten Son of the Lord God, our Lord Jesus. You must understand, the God of the Bible is a God who wants to be known. He wants us to know who he is, and knowing that, know who we are. And he didn't leave this all for us to figure out on our own. No, he took the initiative. He drew us to himself. He spoke to us. He made himself known to us. And by Christ Jesus, now we have everything that we need. He has told us everything he wants to know. Jesus has brought completion. He has brought finality to the revelation of God that he gave to his people. There was nothing wrong or incorrect about the Old Testament, but it was always forward-looking. It was always expecting something else. It was always expecting a last word. Now we have it. That something else has come. And what does that word tell us? What does the revealer of that word tell us? Why did Christ Jesus walk the road to Jerusalem? Why did he walk on the road to the cross, knowing that he would die, knowing for certain that it meant torment and death? John 10, verse 10. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came because his people were dead in their sins and separated from the Lord. He came so that they, those first believers, everyone who had believed in the Lord before his coming, and now us too, so that we would have eternal life in Jesus and through him. In Easter, we see that God's wrath against our sin required justice. It required death. But we also see his love in sending his son to die for us, sending his son to die for his people, for the elect, and calling them to believe in the name of Jesus so that they can be saved. That's why God's revelation through Jesus Christ, that's why Jesus speaking to us is better than what the prophets did, what they ever could do in their time. Again, everything they said was necessary and true, but always incomplete always looking forward, always anticipating, always waiting for that last word from God. 
And when Jesus finally came, if the prophets had been able to see this, and John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, said, this is him. This is who we've been waiting for. This is the Lamb of God. This is the man who will reveal the will of God to us finally. We marvel at the things that men like Moses did and Elijah and the other prophets for how they spoke powerful words from the Lord, how they did powerful, amazing, supernatural miracles. And we often wonder, what would it have been like to be there on the shore of the Red Sea and watch Moses part the waters? What would it have been like to be there and watch Elijah call fire down from heaven to consume that altar of stone? We say, what a time it must have been to see that. And you know what the prophets would say to you in the 21st century if you said that to them? They'd laugh at you. They'd say, no, 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 no. You have it better than I ever did. If you said to Moses, I would have loved to be there and to see you part the Red Sea, Moses would have told you, why? What for? Yeah, it was cool, but what you have is way better. I wish I could be with you right now. You know what we didn't know. You know what I never could have known in my time. You have more information than I ever could have had. You've seen God's plan for salvation. You know the name of his son. You know what he has done. God has spoken that to you clearly. In the book that you have on your laps, the words that you have printed in your bulletin or you have on your phone, you can see what the Lord Jesus has done for you. You can see how God has revealed himself in full. Moses could only look at the law and guess at what God would do. He believed, but he couldn't see it all. We can look back and say, thus the Lord has done for us. Moses would say, whatever I had, you have it so much better. You have what I was waiting for. You are far more blessed than you know. Blessed indeed you are, New Life Burbank Church. You have the word of the Lord. You believed on that. You've seen his plan unfolded for you in scripture. You have his word spoken to you in completion every week. You know how God planned to save you in full. You've seen how all this has come together and come to a head in Jesus Christ at Easter. Blessed indeed that you know this, that you can see it, that you can access it at your whim, freely. But with blessing comes responsibility. Responsibility to listen to the word of the Lord. We can access the word anytime we want. Does it matter? Do we care? Is it just something we do on Sunday, or is it something that means something for our life? The author of Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken to us. Last days means the clock is running down. That there is a time when God will say, my son is coming back. No more chances. No more delay. Those who believe in me will be saved. Those who do not will be condemned. Time is running out. And we will face the Lord God and be found in Christ or not. So we must choose life. We must listen to the Son of God. Listen to what God has to say to us through Christ. Listen to what he has to say to you. Receive that word of God and live as his son or daughter. But we might ask, what gives Jesus the right to speak on God's behalf? What makes his authority, what makes his speech, his clout that much more impressive than 
all of the prophets combined, because certainly the author of Hebrews would say this. What, may, what makes God so special? What makes Jesus so special in this 21st century world? What well, says, well, Christ as far as he goes, but no one, not even him, has the right to claim exclusive truth, exclusive access to God and salvation. Why should we receive Jesus as the sole source of truth? We see why in our second point, that Christ possesses the nature of God. After telling us that the Lord has spoken by his Son in the first part of verse 2, the author explains Jesus' pedigree, what gives him the right, what qualifies him to speak on behalf of his Father. And, yeah, what does he say? Still in verse 2. He, that is God the Father, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The author tells us that Christ has the right to speak because God has decreed that all of creation will be inherited by Christ, that from the smallest dust mite to the grandest of stars, Jesus extends his hand over them all and he says, Mine. It belongs to me, exclusively. And the church specifically is Christ's possession, is Christ's inheritance. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, it says, The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is a lot of heritage. The people of God, at this time when the author was writing, the church, they belong to Jesus. He has bought them with his blood. He has redeemed them. And the world has redeemed them. He has cleansed them and the world at large from sin. He has every right, the author says, to speak to his people and to demand to be listened to because it belongs to him. And not only is he the heir of all things, but he is their creator too. It says, through whom, Jesus, he also he created the world. God created the heavens and the earth and everything that fills them. The Bible is unambiguously clear and steadfast on that point. Everything that is, everything that was, everything that will be, the benches that you sit upon, the wood and the fabrics and the cotton that make it up, the stone and carpet beneath your feet, the Lord created all of it simply by speaking. There was nothing, and then the Lord said, let there be, and it was so. He spoke, and the world came into being. He spoke again, and the world was filled with water, with dry land, with plants, and every sort of creature imaginable. And according to the author of Hebrews, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, of the Trinity, was there at creation. He was not himself created. He was not a creature, is not a creature. No, he participated with his Father in creating all things. Jesus created the world from nothing alongside his Father, God the Father. But how can all of this be? How can Jesus rightly claim to own the world? How can he, God create the world through his Son? Verse 3 tells us. It says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And the first time I read those words, I thought to myself, what does any of that mean? Radiance of his power? Exact imprint of his nature? What does this mean? What is the author telling us? 
Let's think about it from this perspective. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul says this of God. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one ever has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is glorious and powerful and unapproachable, so filled with bright, pure, holy light that no man can see him and survive. And yet, in Jesus, Hebrew tells us, all of that power, all of that radiance, all of that glory, all of that light, all of that which which it means to be God, Jesus has that. It dwells in him completely. Everything that it means to be God, Jesus has that and he is that. Yes, he is fully man, as human as you and I are. He had his mother. He had flesh and bone. When he stubbed a toe, it hurt. When he poked himself with a nail, it bled. But he is also fully God. God of God, light of light. As the Nicene Creed says, he is the Son of God, of one substance with the Father. When you see Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us, when you understand him, you understand God himself. He is is exactly the nature of God. The same power to create out of nothing, the same right to dominion and kingship over all the world, the power to govern and sustain creation, all of these things are the exclusive domain of God alone. If Jesus possesses them, and the author of Hebrews says that he does, then that is because he himself is God in the flesh. He's the only begotten of the Father, sent by his Father to his people so that they can have life in him eternally. What right does Jesus have to demand your attention and mine? What gives him the right to say of himself in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Light. No one comes to the Father except through me. What right does he have to say this? He is God. He is the Lord, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Most High. Every title, every honor and glory that the Bible ascribes to God rightly belongs to Jesus Christ. And if he is God of gods and light of light, then he is the only one capable of revealing God to you and me. After all, which one of us can ever say that they have searched out the things of God? Which of us can ever say, I understand God, I get him, I see him? Job 11 verse 7 remarks, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? And the answer is meant to be a laughable, almost mocking, no. No, you can't. We can't even figure out everything that is at the bottom of the ocean floor. We know it must be there. We can sound out a little bit of the things that are down there, but we've got no clue what's at the vast majority of the bottom of the ocean. How could we possibly say, I understand him, of the God who made that ocean and filled it with all of those creatures that we don't even know exist yet? Without God to reveal himself to you and to me, 
we would know precisely nothing about him. He is the creator. We are the creation. We can't reach up to him. So he had to come down to us. He had to condescend to our level so that we could understand him. God made himself knowable to you and me. He let us know about his glory, let us know about his nature by sending us Jesus Christ so that we may see and believe him. The fact that Jesus' nature is an exact match for his Father's, that means that he knows God and is able to reveal the Father to you in a way that no one else and nothing else could ever replicate. And what is the sum of that revelation? What is the sum of what Jesus came to say? He tells us that God is holy and that we have sinned against him and deserve his condemnation. But because of his mercy for those who did not deserve it, God saved us. The creator has drawn near to the creation. The radiant one took on the flesh and bone of a servant and dwelt among us. The Almighty has condescended to speak to the finite, to those who were lost in their sins and their trespasses, so that they could be made with the express intention to make us, as Philippians 2 verse 15 says, blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And we need to hear that word of God more than ever today. There's plenty of quasi-religious, spiritual, big scare quotes, options out there. There are many ways and many paths, apparently, that can teach you about God. But they do not reveal the Lord to you. They don't say anything helpful about him or about the supernatural. We cannot search out the Lord. We can't understand the supernatural. We can't understand God except and unless we receive and respond to what God has given us himself in Jesus Christ. You have the word of God there in front of you in your Bibles. God has spoken to you, and he calls you to listen to his son and to worship him alone with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. We need to hear what Jesus has revealed to us about God that we may have eternal life. But we also need to hear that this work that Jesus Christ came to accomplish is finished that it has been accomplished. What he came to do, what he set out to accomplish, he has done it. That's what we find in our last point, that Christ sits at God's right hand. At the end of verse 3, the author of Hebrews writes this, After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. According to scripture, sin has many different effects. There's many facets to sin that we could unpack. But the one that it's focusing on right here is it's talking about how sin makes us impure, how it stains and taints people, kind of like how sewer water is thrown against a bleached white sheet and taints that and makes it dirty and unclean. Obviously, you don't want sewer water on a bed sheet, and you don't want to go anywhere near a bed sheet with sewer water on it. So it is with God, who is so completely holy and pure that he cannot allow anything that is impure or sinful in his presence. For sinful humanity to draw near to God, as was his desire, if that's to happen, then we must be made pure. They must be made pure. 
If the church was, was made unclean, made impure by sin, that sin must be taken away. The unclean must be made clean. We'll talk more about this as we get closer to Easter. We'll talk more about the role of human high priests as we get along. But for now, we need to understand that priests offered sacrifices that were supposed to purify the people and allow them to come near to worship God. They made intercession between a sinful people and a holy God, acting as mediators. They made sacrifices that were to help in this. But these sacrifices were not effective. They didn't last. They kept needing to be repeated day in and day out. A day comes, we slaughter an animal. Next day, slaughter another animal. So on and so forth. And because of that, the priest, especially the high priest, the person who led all this, who was in charge of maintaining all these things, he was never done. As long as the priest was serving, he always essentially had to stand up in the presence of God and minister. He could never sit down. He could never rest from his work because his work is not done. Purification still has to be made. So the high priest cannot sit. But Jesus' priestly work, which we'll talk about again later on, the purification that he brought about with his shed blood, that was effective. That did the job. His work of purifying his people was forever completed when he died at the cross. And so he can sit down. He can rest. His work is finished. And not only did Jesus Christ sit, but the author tells us that he sat at the right hand of God. The Father exalted him from his humble estate of being basically a simple country fellow and sat him on the highest throne of creation, the highest seat possible, seating him at his own right hand, giving him authority over all that is. Christ Jesus sits at the highest place, rules with the greatest of kingships, rules over all things, physical and spiritual, in the name and to the glory of God the Father. And the author emphasizes this by pointing to the heavenly angels. He says in verse 3 and 4, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If you've ever read a biblical passage talking about an angelic visit, I'm sure you wondered, like me, what that would have been like to have been there. What would it have been like to be a fly on the wall when Daniel saw an angel or when Mary received the visit on the angelic visitor, Gabriel, to tell her, you're going to have a son? The answer is terrified. You'd be terrified to see that. Every time that an angel appears in the Bible to a normal person, even to as powerful and important a prophet as Daniel, the person is always confused and frightened and tempted to worship the angel because that is how impressive they are. That is how holy they appear. But comparing the glory and the beauty and the purity and the holiness of an angel to that, all that of the exalted Christ Jesus that is like comparing a child's finger painting to the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. There is no contest. That is not a comparison that's even worth making. The authority of Jesus Christ outclasses even the highest authority, even the most mighty and most respected of angelic authorities in heaven. The title that he has as the only begotten Son of God, that outclasses and outranks even the mightiest the most powerful of the angels. And the angels themselves, 
Do they gripe at this? Do they say, well, I should be recognized more for my service to God? Of course he did better. He's the son of God, but I did okay. I should be more respected. No. The angels, night and day, we are told, point at their master as he sits on the throne, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Blessed is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is he to sit on the throne of God. Why do the angels say these things? Because of his work of purification has been completed. Because the will of God was to save his people, and the Son of God has brought this to reality. On Good Friday, he died and he was buried. On Easter Sunday, he rose again from the dead and to new and glorified life. Jesus Christ did this for you and for me. People who stand in the same faith, same belief, as the people that the author of Hebrews was writing to, and even the same tradition, the same faith that the first men and women that he spoke to believed in. You have that word of God before you. You have seen the work of Jesus Christ unfolded for you in the scriptures. By his blood, we have purification for our sins. By his blood, we can enter into the presence of God. Because he has been exalted, we will be welcomed into his presence. What shall we do with this great truth? What shall we do now that Jesus Christ has revealed his Father to us, told us about his work to save us, how he's now sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over all things? What are we to do with that? What does it mean? I would suggest that we remember on the Easter, well, one of the Easter sermons we talked about last year when we investigated Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, verses 6 and 12, the Lord God is speaking, and he says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, I've set my son on the highest throne. I have made him ruler over all. Then he says in Psalm 2, verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You and me, as Christians, as a church, we are still called to kiss the Son. That's not a one-and-done thing. Constantly we are before him. Constantly we live under his rule. We are called to offer him fealty. We are called to offer him worship and submission to his name. We are called to continue to worship him, always, but with that promise that if we disobey him, his wrath will be kindled. He will discipline. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all that say, have mercy on me, because I am a sinner. As we draw near to Easter Sunday, remember that Jesus Christ is indeed this exalted one who reigns on high, who calls for you and me to follow him, and to follow him alone, to listen to him, and listen to him alone. He calls to us to submit to him and to serve him. The Lord has spoken to you through his Son, the God-man who sits enthroned in heaven. His church must listen to him, for his word is truth and life to all who believe in him.